Hi folks, welcome to episode 116 of Epochs of the Lotus Eaters. I'm joined by Bo, and today we're going to be talking about one of the greatest English generals of all time, John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough, and the victor of the Battle of Blenheim. Yeah, that's right. It's obviously his most famous battle, uh, but he won lots of other ones in, in great fashion. Weirdly, um, you don't just begin at your greatest victory. You have to work up to them. Well, it's funny. This was his first big battle. He was a yeah, he was a career military man who was in the army for like 30 yeah. years before Blenheim. Yeah. Uh, but he'd never been in command right, right. of a big, big battle before. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but yeah, so it's just one of those great set of pieces in English history. Mm. You know, if you're going to call yourself a history nerd, there's certain ones, you know, if you're interested in Roman history, you've got to know about the Battle of Canada. Yeah. Or Battle of the Milvian Bridge something. Or if you're in Alicia. Into the American Civil War, you've got to know about Antietam and Cold Harbor and Gettysburg. If you're a fan of English history, there's a few you've got to know about, right? Yeah. Like Trafalgar. Bosworth Field, Trafalgar. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so many. Agincourt, you know. Agincourt, yeah, Plassey, Hastings. This is one of them. Blenheim is one of them. Yeah. You really should know a little something about it. Um, because it's not like um, a, a Cressy or an Agincourt where we win against fantastic odds. The numbers are fairly similar. Mm. And it's not like we dish out a massive defeat to them and we hardly lose any men. It's not like that. Yeah, I, I looked at the, but, uh, the, the casualty figures. It's ooh, actually re ooh. relative parity on both sides. The reason why it's so significant is uh, because sort of during the battle itself, some, some pretty neat movements were done. Right. But the, 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 the fallout, the aftermath of it, was, it, it changed, the whole <clears throat> changed the whole balance of power in Europe. Right. That's why it's so important. And... Um, there were battles after during the War of the Spanish Succession. So this is a battle during the War of the Spanish Succession. Yeah, so this, this is about, what, 1704 or something It's like 1704, that? yeah. Right. Uh, thank, thank you, Wikipedia, for saving me for just four of you. Went on. So, <laughs> so, the, the, so the thing is, right, from about 1600 to about 1800, just after 1800, Europe is racked by such wide-ranging and unbelievably bloody wars that are phenomenally complex uh, the essentially built up of a series, you know, series of really complex alliances that all get triggered over and over and over. You know, you've got loads of these different types, and it's all about establishing the balance of power on the continent. And to be honest with you, I kind of skimmed them because they're really complicated and there's mm. so much to read. <laughs> I was like, right, chaos in Europe, got it, <laughs> and I just skipped to the end. Uh, I find them sort of endlessly fascinating. They are, they I'm are. one of those people, um, one of those particular types of history nerd, mm. where I sort of never really get bored. Mm. I will eventually get well, bored of detail, but it wasn't. Um, it wasn't really about getting takes bored. Takes quite a lot. It, for me, it was. I was more interested in the ancient world, and this was so labyrinthine. I didn't really know where to start when I was studying it, so I was just like, ah, just I'll just go to Napoleon. Because that, that appears to have like a beginning, a definite beginning and end, you know. So I kind of skipped the 1700s, basically, uh, which lazy on my part, I'm aware. Um, but it means I don't have a great deal of knowledge of this, really. Well, maybe I can try and set it up for you and for everyone out there. Yeah. Um, well, first thing to say is that I do think, even though this is pretty much 100 years before Napoleon, mm. the numbers are getting up towards Napoleonic level numbers. Mm. The Battle of Blenheim is very bloody. Yeah. Much bloodier than uh, any medieval battle, basically. Mm. In fact, it was one of the bloodiest battles in Europe up to this point, mm. including a couple of ancient examples, actually. But um, And this is going to be the sort of pike and shot era, right? Possibly not um, pike. No, m muskets that. and bayonets right. and cannon. Right, okay. so we're, That sort of thing. We're into the sort of 
equipment that Napoleonic era would have used. Yeah, right. yeah, very much so. Yeah, right. in the Napoleonic era, they're just getting decent rifles. Right. So there's no rifles yet. But, but you've got you've got uh, you've got muskets and muskets. Pistols, yeah, muskets and pistols, firing round shot, cannon. Right. Um, obviously, not repeating cannon, nothing yeah. like that. Because uh, the the population but, of Europe would have undoubtedly grown at this point, like like in the Middle Ages, is you know, just Europe's population is going to be much higher in seventeen hundred than it would have been in twelve hundred or something. Like yeah, that. that's true. And that's so right. you know, the the battles just start growing larger and larger until you get to like World War Two. When it's literally millions of men moving, you're like, God, it's crazy. Yeah, in World War One, you've got like yeah. millions of, of troops yeah. under arms. So we're not quite there, but yeah. it is it will be in the tens of thousands. Mm. Well, just to cut to chase on that, Blenheim, we filled out the, the Allied army, of which yeah. the British or the English, not British yet, the English are only about uh, uh, two thirds or something. Uh, we've got about fifty two thousand men and they've got about fifty six thousand men. Right. So that's that's I mean, they're big, of, big armies. It's bigger than nearly any medieval battle. Mm. Um, and sort of getting up there for sort of a mid-sized Napoleonic era one, mm. but still dwarfed by World War One, World yeah. War II era ones. Um, so that's where we are. All right, so the War of the Spanish Succession. So what that is in a nutshell, again, you know, I could do two hours explaining yeah. what that is, but in a nutshell. Is it that Britain is concerned that there's going to be a massive power block on the European continent, and we, ha England particularly, is concerned about this, and we have to uh, intervene on the side of the weaker power in order to make sure that they win uh, instead of whatever the other side is. Yeah. Of course it is. That's exactly it. There's a joke. Where, where's the joke? It's, it's either like Blackadder or like, um, I can't remember, it's some you know 90s or 80s British TV show. Where they just talk about how uh, you know England's foreign policy for the last five hundred years has just been keep the continent disunited. Hmm. In fact, I think it was Yes Minister actually <laughs> things from that, and that's actually not a joke. That's genuinely how it's been. Yeah, and it's not just us. Um, it's, no, lots it's, of other people. Have. It's just like a gaming risk when you see someone's mm. overly powerful or just about to win or something, mm. without even really communicating with the other players, you all gang up on them. Yeah. It's sort of just almost sort of de facto the thing you do. So quite often, Britain has found itself in that position. Oh, we're the last one left to do something about it. Yeah. It, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, even in the run-up to World War One, mm. when a lot of Europe thought that the Kaiser, Kaiser Bill, was getting overly powerful and we sort of have to do something about it. It's just a continuation of, yeah. of that same theme. So in this period, or in the year 1700, the, the king of Spain, uh, Charles, uh, Charles II, uh, dies. He was a very, very inbred man. He only lived to be about 39. Is that the guy with the weird chin? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like badly. One of the hats. I'm sure we can get, really bad. I'm sure we can get a picture up of this guy. He's like one of the worst examples of Habsburg inbreeding. Yeah. Um, and his autopsy revealed. I won't go into the detail, but it's hideous. So how did you live to, into adulthood being yeah. this badly disabled, basically? Yeah. Um, so anyway, he died, childless, and uh, he bequeathed not just, like Spain and the entire Spanish Empire, which in seventeen hundred was massive, mm. the, an empire of sort of two worlds, really, absolutely giant. Their holdings in the New World uh, bequeathed it uh, to Philip of Anjou, who is the grandson of the King of France, Louis XIV, right. Louis the Fourteenth, the, the Sun King, and so everyone's like, well. If France, that are already the most powerful country in Europe, uh, militarily... Join with Spain, who probably control... I mean, the, the Habsburgs also controlled 
I mean, obviously it changes, but like, you know, various parts of like, the, you know, the, the Netherlands and Eastern Europe and, you know, yeah, obviously yeah. the New World and Spain. And Austria just, and the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. So it's it's like, this is just one gargantuan power block. So no wonder the English are like, look, I think we're going to have to step in here. Yeah. The English and everyone else who it wasn't in their interest for, yeah. to see that happen. And of course, there's that layer of Protestant versus Catholic thing. Mm. So Louis Fourteenth was Catholic. Obviously. The Spanish would be, yeah. of course, Catholic. So it'd be one giant, insanely strong Catholic block. Mm. So led more or less by the English, um, but not just the English. There's a, a grand coalition of allies. Yeah. The, the remaining um, Protestant countries. We don't want to see that happen. Yeah. Um, so, but the Spanish King Charles II, on his deathbed, bequeaths it to this Philip of Anjou, who's like I say, grandson of Louis XIV, who would just be Louis XIV's creature, mm. right? And um, uh, so th there's also uh, an another claimant, um, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, in with his capital in Vienna, mm. um, the, in Austria, um, who sort of was another claimant, the next best claimant. So Britain and the Netherlands as a sort of a Protestant league and others, sort of the, 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 the Duchy of the Kingdom of Savoy, sort of doesn't sound like much but that was sort of a power at this point mm. around 1700 and others and lots of other smaller places all sort of gang up together to try and prevent france from just sort of taking this yeah so that is in a nutshell is what the war of the spanish succession is about um now that he dies charles ii dies of spain charles dies in 1700 and by 1701 it sort of comes to blows and this happens hmm. in 1704. And a lot of the big battles happen between 1704 and sort of 1711, 1712 sort of time. So it's a long, it's a fairly long, well, the war of Spanish success and lasts for 13, knocking 14 odd years long, it is. So it's not quick. There's but, many years of campaigning. Goes yeah, on. yeah. And but the, a lot of back and forth as well. Yeah. And I mean, again, we, you know, pre-modern era. So everything just takes longer anyway. You know, this is the thing people have got to remember, you know, just time. Everything is time. But anyway. Um, certain claimants die. Other children are born in during those 13, 14 mm. years. So it changes the political map. Like at one point, an older brother dies and another one, someone else has a son. And it's like, oh, well, that completely changes our whole political calculation now. We need to flip sides. All sorts of stuff. You, you've, got, you've got to love the <laughs> politics of European monarchies mm. uh, and, and <laughs> aristocracies. It's just like, it's it's... It is kind of arbitrary. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, yeah. I suppose, that there's just like a giant, giant, the biggest struggle yes. is between Charles of Austria, the Holy Roman Emperor, and Louis XIV. Mm -hmm. And uh, we come down on the side against Louis. Because in before this period where we'd had the King William of Orange, William III, he was sort of implacably against Louis XIV his whole mm -hmm. life. So... We're just a continuation of that. By this mm -hmm. point, uh, Mary dies just before a few years before uh, William of Orange. William of Orange dies in a hunting accident, falls off his horse. Mm. Quite common to sort of just fall off your horse. Yep. Um, and die. And so it goes to Mary's younger sister, Anne. Anne's best friend, quite literally her best mate, uh, was a Sarah Churchill, whose husband is John Churchill. Right. Whose father was a Winston Churchill, instantly. And who's like, Great, 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 great grandson is, of course, another Winston Churchill. He was born in Blenheim Palace. 
Which was, yeah, which was built. Yeah. Uh, I did know that because I've been there. Right, and yeah. of course, it's got Winston Churchill's bedroom still in it. Right. Uh, but it was built with the um, the rewards that he got following the Battle of Blenheim. Mm, mm. Yeah, I detail a little bit of that right at the very end, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's just dive straight Spoiler into it. Spoiler alert, we win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we win this one. Um, so John Churchill, later to become the first Duke of Marlborough, yeah. um, was just a career, I mean, his family, they were sort of, well to do but not ennobled hmm. um and he was a career military man mm-hmm. and uh he was sort of in the entourage in the household of james james the second so the younger brother of charles the second and james had raised him to be well a, a general in the army hmm. but then during the glorious revolution uh, it's one of the stains you could argue on Churchill, john churchill's record is that he sort of sees the ways way the wind is blowing and switch sides over to William. Right. Well, he's again, John Churchill isn't, um, Duke of Marlborough isn't a Catholic, so it sort of made sense. But he did, you can't really deny, sort of backstabbed his benefactor there at that moment in time. Yeah. Some people say, oh, that's a dark black, black mark on him. And others say, no, it's the right thing to do. It's yeah. absolutely the right thing to do. He was well following done. his principles. Right. Yeah. Oh, right. I tend to believe that. As a I... non-Catholic Englishman, I tend to believe. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly, I think he's on the right side of history. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it turns out that he, like I say, he was sort of a, a, a captain general. You can't yeah. get much higher than that. A captain general of the British Army. Um, and his wife, they were like a double act, a political double act. Mm. Um, his wife, once Anne becomes queen, it's, she couldn't be closer to the, yeah. to the, to the throne. And so he gets... He's sort of promoted. He couldn't be promoted any higher. Mm. If there's going to be a big campaign on the continent, he's, he, the man. he's going to get it. Yeah. He's going to get the command of it. Um, so by 1704, um, it's, there's a coalition, an allied coalition, um, and it looks like, well, Bavaria in, in modern southern Germany. There's no Germany yet still. Yeah. Uh, Bavaria in southern Germany. Um, is on the side of Louis. Now that is sort of, a, well, he flipped. Originally he was on our side and he right. flipped. And, is Bavaria Catholic? Um, I Probably is. I don't know if he was. I suppose he, I, I should know that, but I'm not sure, hmm. actually. Um, but he flipped sides. Right. And that was a big sort of realignment there because what that means is now you've got aren't like Bavaria had an army of sort of 45,000 men mm. and it allows the French combined French armies to march through to potentially besiege and take Vienna. Mm. Now if Vienna was taken that would spell the end of our coalition well, and take, we taking, would be left sort of on our own against the rest yeah. of Europe. Well they would have taken our allies capital knocking them out of the war. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so we had an army in the United Provinces. We talked a little bit, didn't we, about mm. the United Provinces, modern-day Holland, basically. Yeah. Um, and there was a, a, a big sort of meeting there about what to do. Mm. Now Bavaria's just sort of flipped. Uh, what are we going to do? And the, the, the Dutch and a, a big faction in our, in our politics thought, well, we'll just, we'll just have a campaign into France. It will either go down into what is modern-day Belgium and northern France or, or sort of skirt around the Moselle River, go down to sort of the Alsace-Lorraine region mm. and sort of cut in to the heart of France that way, mm. basically try and stab France in some sort of way. 
do something. We've got to do something, yeah. right? Um, so that's sort of, I suppose, where the story begins, where the campaign of right, 1704 okay. begins. Um, I've got a quick paragraph here from Charles O'Man. Wouldn't be an epoch without an O'Man quote. Just before you go on uh, to the quote, th yeah. this, this strikes me as a relatively um, ill-defined set of campaign goals. Like, right, so Bavaria's just flipped. Okay, well, what's our plan? Attack France? And do what? With what goal? What, we can take Paris? Mm. You know, what we can do is just, just ravage the countryside a bit, because, I mean, it's not like we haven't done that before. You know, uh, just what was the plan? If it's just literally just going to take 50,000 men down there and see what happens. Uh, okay. Well, you make a good point. And what comes up here is uh, Churchill, um, he's, he has got a plan. Right. He sort of makes out that he hasn't necessarily got very, very clearly defined war goals, but he actually has. Okay. But you make a great point. Why doesn't he tell? Well, and, I suppose he um, tell people to make sure the plan doesn't leak or something. And right, yeah. yeah. And also, that is a problem even into the twenty first century. Oh, yeah. Remember when the Americans went into Iraq without really any yeah. defined concrete war yeah. goals? Same with Afghanistan. We'll just change the regime. Yeah. Then what? Uh, yeah. It's not how it works. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like you better have a plan. We'll figure it out. Yeah. We'll do it live. Don't worry yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, we'll yeah. do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Um, so, so Winston Churchill said of Louis, this is quite a damning thing. He said, quote, no worse enemy of human freedom has ever appeared in the trappings of polite society. <laughs> oh, sorry, polite civilization. He, he had an insatiable appetite, cold, calculating ruthlessness, ruthlessness, a monumental conceit, uh, presented themselves armed with fire and sword. That's what the, the, the 20th century Winston Churchill thought mm. about Not uh, Louis XIV. Mm. Yeah, he does. He what? I don't know about megalomaniac because he wasn't mad. But he did have designs. He, did, he was ambitious. He did want to sort of control all of Europe. I don't or think the world that, even. I don't think being mad is a necessary component of megalomania. To be honest, yeah. it's just lust for power. Mm. Yeah, I think once you've got a great deal of money and power, the only thing left to aim at, if you don't want to just take it easy for the rest of your days, is to accrue more of it. There's nothing else to do, is there? Glory. Yeah, that's right. What, that's what you need next. Right. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Make sure your name is stamped more firmly in the in the history books. Yeah. What else is there to do? Um, but Sir Charles O'Man says, and um, this is sort of a general thing about John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough. Hmm. Um, he said, quote, Hitherto Churchill had shown himself an able general, but, uh, uh, but no one had taken the true measure of his abilities or recognised the fact that he was by far the greatest military man that England had ever known. But now the ignominious political antecedents of Queen Anne's favourite were about to be hidden from view by the laurels that he was to win. John Churchill, when once he had been in, when when once he had intrigued his way to power, showed that he was well fitted to hold it. As a soldier, he was the founder of a new school of scientific strategy. On the battlefield, he was alert and vigorous, but he was greater in the operations that precede a battle, because his men. His nickname was Corporal John because they sort of loved him so much. He was right. like he was like a corporal to them. He looked yeah. out for his men, looked out for the individual men yeah. as a corporal might. Right. Um, so that was one of his one of his nicknames, Corporal John. Um, he had an unrivaled talent for careful and scientific combinations by which he would deceive and circumvent an enemy so as to attack him when least expected and at the greatest, greatest advantage. A bit Napoleon, mm. Napoleonic-esque in that sense. He does do things that Napoleon would do. Yeah. Um, uh, 
where generals of an older school would run headlong into a fight and win with heavy loss, he would outflank or outmarch his enemy and hustle him out of his positions with little or no bloodshed. On one occasion, as we shall see, which I won't, we won't go into, but on one occasion, he drove an army of 60,000 French before him and seized half the Duchy of Brabant without losing more than 80 men. Blimey. Yet when hard blows were necessary, he never shrank from the most formidable problems and would lead his troops into the hottest fire with a cool-headed courage that won every man's admiration. He sounds great. It's a soldier, soldier. Mm. And he has that thing, which Napoleon definitely didn't have, where he put a great deal of emphasis on making sure his men had boots <laughs> and enough food. Yeah, and Napoleon's and busy spending 20,000 lives a month. John Churchill isn't. Napoleon always said, even when it obviously wasn't going to work, he said, oh, well, the army can just live off its own means. They can just plunder whatever they need at all times. I don't really need to worry about logistics too much. Yeah, it's and, crazy. And, and, and like the vittles for their horses and things. It will just sort itself out. Yeah, it's mental. Yeah, maybe sometimes in summer in the right parts of Europe, but yeah. well, a lot yeah. of the time not. That's not going to work yeah, for Especially you. not if it's getting late in the year in Russia, for example. All right, yeah. But there, there's a, I can't remember who said it, but there's a famous quote, it's, luck is the residue of design. Mm. And that's mm. what I'm hearing from John Churchill. Yeah. There's a man who's, who spends a lot of time carefully planning mm. everything before the action, and then the action goes swimmingly because everything has been accounted for in advance. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. Oh, absolutely right. Um, so there's this. So he's he he says to the Dutch mm. and the United Provinces, who are our first ally, yeah. really says, you know, we've got to do something here. Otherwise, Louis is just gonna they're gonna march on Vienna and take it. Yeah. Um, well, we we need to strike a blow. And the Dutch are sort of like oh. they do that loads in in this war. Actually, they're right. like oh, we've only got one small army and we don't want to risk it. And uh. and so he basically says, okay. Well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. You're invited to come along if you want, but I'm just going to do what's in England's best interest right now. Yeah. And they sort of go, okay, and they give him a few battalions. Right. They're sort of fairly, yeah, so that's what happens. So he starts marching down um, down the, the Moselle River hmm. as, in, as though he's going to attack into the Alsace-Lorraine region. But it's, it's just to cut to the chase on it, it's a giant feint. That's not what he does. But it's sort of kept, it keeps the secret so well mm. that everyone's fooled by it. Um, I've got one account here from a, a Captain Parker of the Royal Irish Regiment, um, who's obviously there. Mm. And he said, quote, Now, as we expected to march up the Moselle, to our surprise, we crossed that river over a stone bridge and the Rhine over two bridges of boats. And we proceeded on our march through the country of Hescassel, where we were joined by the troops of the hereditary prince, which made our army 40,000 fighting men complete. Um, and so he's doing sort of this giant feint, basically, mm -hmm. and the French army sort of mirror him. Um, they're, they're absolutely expecting him to sort of, at any moment, sort of recross the Moselle and go straight into the heart of France, maybe even, you know, somewhere around Verdun, somewhere like that. Um, and he even... Marlborough even uh, starts building bridges as right. though he's going to do that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but what he's done, one of the great things he, he does is this idea of logistics to make sure that if the men have got enough food and horses have got enough food and they've got boots, they can do things that during that day 
seemed impossible. Mm. Like you can't march 40,000 men 250, 260 miles in six weeks, and at the end of it, there's freshest daisies and can fight a battle. You can't do that. Not normally, anyway. Well, that's exactly what he does, essentially, because he just does it well. Um, I tell you, it must have been good to been, you know, if you're going to be a soldier in anyone's army, thank God you got him, because like there are so many generals who just don't care about you at all. Good old Corporal John will look yeah. after you. You see, that's yeah. why they... they but, uh, but I tell you what, man, we've talked about this before, and I'm, I'm telling you, man, the, this unwavering belief that our general is not only the best, but he also is looking out for us, mm. that's, the, mm. that's the secret source for a, a, a general, for, a, for a, 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 a massively successful army every yeah. time. Because you know. quite often you need the goodwill of your fighting men. Yeah. Certainly. Well, it's, they're the ones doing the fighting. Right, yeah. If they don't believe that they can win or they're going to win or that you're looking out for them, then they're going to fight poorly. Certainly your NCOs, your sort of sergeant-level yeah. guys. Another thing just to say quickly is that this was essentially, not entirely, but sort of essentially a volunteer-type army at this mm. point. Um, and so a lot of them wanted to be there. They weren't conscripts. They weren't forced to be there against their will. Very few English armies ever have been conscripts, though. Have they? We've always had volunteer armies. Yeah, well, World War One. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, sorry, there are yeah, uh, I mean exceptions, but yeah, obviously in the quite modern often. Era, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. But in you know in, in pre-modern times, it was always a volunteer force. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah, and there were so many regiments on the on the continent at this point. Mm. That apparently, there weren't really any soldiers in London to sort of carry out the normal things, sort of <laughs> the upkeep of the Tower of London and yeah, stuff. Yeah. We only really need a handful of men to do that, and they just want any. They're right. all in Europe, basically. Right, okay. um, so, um, so yeah. There's uh, uh, Captain Parker goes on to say this: um, We frequently march because this is a famous march. Mm. This this is sort of a famous march. Uh, we frequently march three, sometimes four days successively, and halted a day. We generally generally began our march at three in the morning because it was quite hot. It's the middle of summer. This is right. this is June, July, August time. Um, we generally began our march at three in the morning, proceeded about four leagues and reached our ground at about nine. As we marched through the countries of our allies, uh, commissaries were appointed to furnish us with all manner of necessaries for man or horse. And these were brought to the ground before we arrived. So the soldiers had nothing to do but to pitch their tents, boil their kettles and lie down to rest. Surely was never such a march conducted with more order and regularity and with less fatigue to both man and horse. Very good. It's all sort of very English, sort of squared away, isn't it? Yeah. If you're going to do a job, do, do it properly. It properly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have a bit of pride in the work you're doing. Honestly, yeah, I'm yeah. really enjoying hearing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Um, well, it's like, because you, you hear about all of these other campaigns in history and you know people are suffering everyone's starving and they're you know like you say they've got no boots their feet are dropping off and the men are just dropping on the road like you know and this is the total opposite this is exactly how things should be done it's good to hear yeah it's funny even in um in the 20th century the thing that springs to mind is um the germans on the eastern front mm. in the cold summers even a couple of years in it's like why haven't you sent them Great coats, yeah, and um, you know, warm hats, yeah. And why aren't you manufacturing hundreds of thousands yeah. of pairs of gloves for these men? But this, this is like you know, these these are proper organizational skills, right? It's mm. like Churchill's like, look, the, the army is what I'm going to use to win the war, 
uh, I better take care of it. Actually, I don't yeah. have it, and that's again maybe it's just because England has always had this constrained uh, position that it's always been. It's like, look, we're actually smaller than the other great powers of Europe, mm. and uh, we don't have infinite numbers of men, so we're just going to be better than them. Yeah. We're just going to have to have high standards, and that's what you can see coming out right there. Yeah. Like that's a lot of organization. Oh God, yeah. You know, yeah, that's yeah. A, like for, yeah. you know, we it, it's you know one paragraph, but contained in that paragraph are thousands and thousands of men sending letters and riding horses to various people and to you know and then moving tons and tons of material to the right spot at the right time and all of this is just such a lot of busy work mm -hmm. you know and it's it's really easy to get wrong and really difficult to get it all right mm. and so the fact that you know he's like how many different languages did this have to be translated through to get all of this sorted like you, nobody thinks about like the genuine like logistical difficulty of actually getting that letter to someone who understands it who will then reliably get the material where you need it to be for when you arrive you know this, this sort of thing is hugely impressive mm. and it's pretty much down to him so to say he had sort of a very very small staff mm. what in later centuries you would you would say like um in, you know like a very very senior officer corps yeah or the staff of the commanding officer mm. it's kind of tiny there's no logistics core yeah. It's all down to him. Yeah. It's all down to him to send loads and loads of letters. Yeah. To be sort of endlessly working to make mm -hmm. this happen. So almost by magic. So for example, they needed something like a hundred tons of fodder for the horses a day. A mm. hundred tons a day. I mean, that's just so much food. They had, they had twenty thousand horses yeah. on this march. That's huge. Right. But then, then I'm just thinking of Hannibal taking elephants through the Alps, you know, just like how much food, yeah. how much organization. And, you know, no, none of the ancient sources want to talk about that because it's sort of not, not sexy, mm, right? Yeah. But like, weird. it's just so much work and to have it done successfully is just so genuinely impressive, frankly. And the way they did it is because even by 1700, our sort of empire was doing quite well mm. in terms of commerce and money. Yeah. We had uh, England, we're not quite Britain yet. Um, that's what, 1709, the full joining of the crowns? Okay. So it's 1707, okay. Act of Union. So it's just before this, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're still England. It's still yeah. technically accurate to call it England. But we're England, showing the Scots, the look, you don't really have much choice here, Louis. So the losers on the continent are us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, get, get in. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're building an empire. Yeah, we're conquering the world. Um, <laughs> um, so they... Uh, it's just all down to to Churchill himself to sort of make it happen, mm. and um, uh, again, it's one of those things where some people in history, um, there's another way of putting it, but they're just sort of capable. One of the things that's said about John Churchill loads is that his interpersonal skills, like as a as a diplomat, uh, his manners mm. are all brilliant. They're all perfect. Mm. Like if you met him and you didn't have a political reason to not like him. You would like him. Yeah. He would bring you around. It's one of those people, I guess, a charisma. I guess mm. it's just a natural charisma. Yeah, someone who rolled high on their stats when they're <laughs> yeah. creating their character, right? Yeah, 18 yeah. charisma yeah. they've got, yeah. yeah. But also, yeah. you know, 18 intelligence, 18 <laughs> wisdom, you know. <laughs> okay, well, great. You know, I can do all of these things. Well, brilliant. Lead yeah. the way. Yeah. <laughs> to watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.